This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from an office space. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Chris Ferdinandi. Hey, everyone, coming in from Boston. I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Julian Farrer. Hi, everyone. How's it going? I totally Americanized your name. I apologize. That is perfectly fine. Everyone does. <laughs> you want to give everyone a brief introduction who you are, why you're famous? Sure thing. I'm not sure I'm famous. As I said, my name is Julian. I'm a software engineer here in San Francisco, and I'm a big container enthusiast, big fan of Docker. I use containers on a daily basis. I can't stop talking or thinking about them. And I took this so far that I made this gigantic course about Docker and containers with about 300 videos where I tell people everything I know about containers, which might be why some people know me. Yeah, we had you on Elixir Mix a while back, and I thought, man, we should get him on some of the other shows and talk about how those folks can use Docker. So here you are. Yeah, happy to do that. So just to give us a, a brief introduction, uh, I'm curious because I, I remember this course being like a zillion modules. How long is the Docker course that you have? About 11 hours. So I think if you're like sitting down and really want to learn it, you can go get it done within a week. That's awesome. And <laughs> that's a lot. There's a lot to learn. It's definitely, definitely a different paradigm and a different way to think. And I think that's where people like, you know, where it falls off the radar is like, oh, I'm just like trying to use the technology without actually understanding how it works and what it does. Gotcha. I'm kind of curious how you started diving into Docker because I feel like that's more of like backend DevOps space. So is that mostly your prior experience? I would say so. I guess I'm considered to be a full stack engineer, but I'm definitely focused on DevOps and backend. And I've been looking at Docker many years ago, and I didn't really like understand why somebody would want to use that versus, you know, Ansible or Chef or something else to set up your machine and development environment. And I guess a couple years ago now, we were looking into making our production environment easier the chopper I had at that time. And we were evaluating different options and we came across Docker and I had another look and at that moment just clicked. Nice. I mean, I know personally, like pretty much everywhere I've ever worked, there's been somebody in charge of like our DevOps process, getting stuff deployed, except for the very first job I had. And it's always been frustrating for me ever since where everything is kind of a black box. So I enjoy learning more about this kind of stuff. Because when there's problems with your deployment, I don't want to have to go to somebody to help me get unblocked. I want to be able to unblock myself. Totally. And you're probably the one that uh, understands the application better than anyone else. So combining those concerns instead of separating them totally makes sense. Yeah. So all that to say, I think this is like a valuable topic for us to have because I think it helps people to understand this stuff. So why Docker over Ansible or the other options? So maybe we start with like explaining a little bit what Docker is to make it easier to explain why I prefer Docker over Ansible or why I would use both of them. 
Yeah, because I know we're using Docker and Ansible at work. So <laughs> perfect combination. You call that danceable. That <laughs> would be an awesome name. Ansibocker. I don't know. I like danceable better. <laughs> yeah, me too. So in a nutshell, containers are a technology that um, allow us to run applications in isolation from each other so that you can run multiple versions of the same application or many different applications on the same machine without those applications interfering with each other. Ultimately, containers are just processes on an operating system, but they're really fancy processes. That means they can get their own networking stack, their own users, process tree, file system, and so on. So it makes them a little bit look like virtual machines, but they're much more lightweight. As I said, they're just processes on an operating system that you can start and stop at any time. And the cool thing about those containers is that they, well, you use this thing called a container image to start them. And the container image usually wraps an application and all that application's dependencies. So for example, the system libraries, the node modules, a compiler, a runtime like Node.js, or whatever you need to run your application is packaged into this container image. And then you can just take this image and start a container based on it. And you know that your application will be up and running because it's packaged with its dependencies. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. I've spent a lot of time talking about this, though. Okay. One, one thing that I'm, I think is interesting about this, too, you're talking about the dependencies. Um, usually, it's some kind of Linux container, though I'm reasonably certain you can run other operating systems within Docker. But the thing that's interesting is, is that because of the way that Docker works and containerizes all this stuff, it's consistent across all of your environments. So you don't run into the works on my machine, but doesn't work in production or vice versa. Yeah, totally. The, the way Docker does this, we're supporting multiple rating systems is, uh, so as I said, containers are always a process on an operating system. That means a Linux container needs to run on Linux because it needs a Linux kernel. And the other type of container we have is Windows containers that need to run on Windows because they need a Windows kernel. But Docker makes it really easy to set up a virtual machine for you and manage a virtual machine that you can run containers on. So if you're having macOS or you're using Windows and you want to run a Linux container, uh, that's basically transparent to you. Docker just starts that container inside the virtual machine and you interact with it as if it was running on your local machine. Mm -hmm. But you have this, inside the container, you have this underlying container OS or base OS uh, that is inside the container image. And that ships with the user space tools of, for example, Debian or Ubuntu or CentOS or whatever you want to use. So no matter what you run as your operating system, the user space tools are always exactly the same, no matter where you run the application. Meaning that you can run CentOS on, in Docker on an Ubuntu setup? Yeah, absolutely. So you don't have to care about which operating system your company uses or which you want to use and whether somebody's using macOS for development or Windows or Linux. It's just basically everything runs in the container throughout the whole stack and development on CI, CD and in production. And you're just having this container that you're or containers that you're dealing with. So there's no fiddling around with installing dependencies, etc. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the other thing is when you onboard somebody new, it's oh, well, you have to figure out how to use all the tools that we use on the machine that we gave you, right? That we wiped from the last person that was on the team. And this short circuits a lot of that setup, right? They have a working copy of the system almost immediately. Yeah, totally. Instead of like spending your first day setting up your new laptop, you basically install Docker, clone the source code, execute one command, and your application is up and running. And that you know that that will work no matter what operating system you're on. Now... I know that a lot of people will use Docker if it's what mandated by their employer. 
hey, we're all using Docker, we're deploying with Docker, blah, 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 blah. But what if you're having some of these pain points and you want to try and get adoption in the place that you're working? Is there an adoption curve to this or is it pretty simple to get going with? I mean, there's definitely a learning curve and people have to be on board and actually learn it to use it. But I think especially if you're growing or you're onboarding people, having a person set it up and then showing somebody else how to use it and how awesome it is usually works. And I recently switched jobs. They're using containers in production, on staging, on CI, but not in development, which is also an option. But I'm currently trying to push everyone to like, hey, we can just use containers and make onboarding a one hour thing instead of a day thing. Right. We're actually using them for development at work, too. Uh, that's awesome. Are you like running your whole test suites and stuff inside of containers? Or yep. Yeah, yep. yeah that's, that's the way to go, I think. It is really nice, actually, because it's also... But I'll let you guys keep going. No, I'm curious. What, what's your experience been? So the only downfall, I think, is kind of like what I was alluding to when we started talking, where if you have people who are not familiar with it, And I know, you know, the setup is going to be a little bit different wherever you go. So I've kind of asked our ops people to do like a launch and learn or something for the developers because it's a black box for us. So when we have problems, we can't really, we're not really able to troubleshoot them. We have to go to the ops people and I never like being able to do that. I want to be able to at least like troubleshoot and get myself unblocked. So that has been a little bit of a pain point, but at the same time, it is nice, like Julian was saying, where, and everybody has their own container, but it is nice to have things kind of like in a black box there. And we have tooling around it so that we can make updates via this tooling that like wraps Docker. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Really curious to, to see that tooling, to be honest. <laughs> it is a closed repo and Bitbucket. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Can you kind of talk about how Ansible and Docker work together? Absolutely. There's different approaches. For one, you still need servers to run containers on, and that service need to have the Docker engine installed. And you could, for example, use Ansible to orchestrate and set up those servers or to scale them dynamically up and down, which is what I'm doing. And then there's also the other route where people use Ansible to create container images which seems to be a thing that's a common in enterprise. I haven't done it myself. I'm not sure why that would be better compared to just writing your regular Docker file, which is what is used to, to create container images. But I think those are the two big, big options. So how much work is it then to get a Docker file and a Docker container up and running? Let's say that I have a, a Node Express app. You know, maybe I've got GraphQL. And so I, I, wanna, I need to build the front end and a back end. How much work is it to convert that into a system that uses Docker for its hosting and deployment and things like that? For the development side, let's say you already know how Docker works and you're getting started. So you know what you're doing and you know the application. You can probably get that done in an hour or two. Okay. If you have the learning curve of, oh, I need to like understand the whole thing. And I've never seen this application before. It's just, you know, time increases to by an unknown factor. Putting it into production is a totally different story. There's a million different ways to do that. And quite honest, when I start a new small application and I want to deploy it, I might do the development in containers, but then I still just push it to Heroku or something like that to, mm -hmm. to run it. It's still the simple solution. And 
there's a couple of cool things that Azure, for example, released recently where you can use a container image to run a service and scale it in production. Um, you can use containers under the hood if you're using Heroku. But if you're like more serious, bigger, and you need to like have more control about your applications, there's things like Docker Swarm or Kubernetes that you can either run yourself or use as a hosted solution, um, which increases the scope of work dramatically. So that's like hard to give an estimate. Does that answer the question? Kind of. Let's assume that uh, people have a passing knowledge of, you know, basic server operations, right? They, they can use a bash prompt. Uh, they they kind of get how server setup takes place. You know, they could deploy their own app if they needed to. Is this something that you could figure out in a day or so to do with Docker? If you never touch Docker, I would probably say no. If you've been using Docker in development, you want to take it to production, then yeah, you can figure it out in a day. I meant more in production or in development, sorry. Oh yeah, if if you're sitting down and you're like reading a little bit, you might figure out the basics in a day and there might be some stones in the way that you might fall over in, in learning this whole concept. A lot of the information out there is outdated. A lot of the information is conflicted. Docker dramatically changed over the the past years and you need to develop this this mindset for containers in order to be successful with them it's just a different paradigm it works differently and you don't want to treat let's say containers like virtual machines that's like not what they are and, and wrapping your head around that you're just having your process wrapped in this fancy thing that contains your application as dependencies to run them uh, might take a while uh, so there's there's issues one of the parts of the learning curve i think is is the mutability versus immutability, like your application versus database, et cetera. Can you talk on that a little bit? Absolutely. So the, the idea behind a container, based on what it is, a process on an operating system is that the container should be disposable. There should be nothing in the container that, you know, creates and persists state. When you're done with a container, you should be able to throw it away. And when you need it again, you start a new one that's like fresh and clean. What that means is that you shouldn't persist state in the file system of the container and your, your application should be designed in a stateless fashion, which is, I guess, if you're writing web applications a day, you might follow the 12 factors. Being stateless is one of those factors, which is a good idea anyway, no matter whether you're using containers or not. But there's still this issues that we have types of applications that need to persist state. For example, a web application might use a database management system, and we do care about the data that's in the database management system. That means we need to persist it somewhere. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily ideal with containers, uh, but there's solutions around that. You can, for example, mount a so-called volume into a container. This could be a little space on your file system. This could be something like uh, elastic block storage or S3 buckets or whatever, and then have the application persist into this volume, which is just mounted into the file system. So it's transparent to the application. It's just something that when you're getting started with containers, you need to wrap your head around, you need to know about it so that you're not losing all your data all of a sudden because you're deleting a container and the data with it. Yeah, I've seen people do this kind of thing with database engines where essentially their database engine process is in a Docker container and it references some folder in the host operating system. So then if you need to for whatever reason, upgrade your database or things like that. You know, they just grab a container with an upgraded version or things like that. Or if they're worried about a secure setup on the database process, then they can just deploy a secure Docker container of it and then reference outward. 
yeah, and, and you have to care about setting that up. It's just provided in the container image. So all you do is run a command, a Docker container run command, attach the volume and you're done basically. You've seen that done often and is that something you recommend or are you better off just doing database setups in the more traditional, for lack of a better word, way? For production, I would probably go with a hosted database solutions like RDS or whatever the equivalent on Azure and you know Google Cloud Platform is called. In development, I do run my databases in containers. I don't see an issue with that. Some people talk about that it's not a good idea and it's slow. Uh, and they used to say the same thing about virtual machines 10, 15 years ago. And now everyone's running databases in virtual machines. So I think it's just takes some time for people to adopt the, the pattern and the processes around containers. But I don't mind running databases in containers at all. And if you're having, let's say, a volume that's attachable to many hosts, for example, like Elastic block storage. The cool thing is if your database, the host with the database on it dies, you just attach this volume to a new host, spin up a new container, attach the data to it, and your database is up and running again, which is a lot harder with uh, traditional virtual machines. Right, because the traditional virtual machines have their own hard drives, so to speak, as files on the operating system. Yeah, and you need to like, if it dies, you need to spin up a whole new virtual machine that boots, which takes a while, and the containers, again, just a process on an operating system that you start and you're done. Yep. So we, we talked a little bit about the idea of these containers being things that you can hand around on your development team. Um, is it as simple as just having a Docker file and just saying, here's my Docker file and it'll run the app, or is there more to it than that? That's basically it in a nutshell. The Docker file describes step-by-step step on how to build the image that you can use to run a container. That means it's going to be part of your source code and uh, hence everyone that has access to the source code can build the image for this application. Mm -hmm. And then there's some additional tooling since the idea is a container has one concern. So if you have a web application with a web front end, uh, workers, a database, and maybe Redis or something, you would run all those concerns in different containers. That means you can have uh, one container image that you use to start a web front end, then maybe use the same container image to start a background worker, and then you use two other images to start Redis and Postgres, and you link them all together. And a tool that allows that uh, in a very easy fashion in development is Docker Compose, where you just describe all those relationships in the YAML file, and then run a single command to, to get it all up and running. Are you guys using Compose, Amy? I do not know because that's a black box to us. So all the ops people are in charge of it. So I am not sure. Do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions around how you develop and how the development process works? Sure. I just don't know too much about all of our Docker setup. I wish I did. <laughs> oh, that, that's okay. I'm just interested <laughs> from, you know, 50,000 feet perspective. Let's say you are working on your application and you're iterating on it. You wrote a test, then you want to execute that test. Are you doing that in a container or locally on your machine? No, everything is done in the container. And what's the command you're running to, to execute a test? So we actually also are integrated, our testing, we're not doing unit testing because we have this super legacy application. So we're only doing integration testing. And the ops people have actually set us up. So we run all of our tests in Rundeck. So we're not even running them like from our command line. We go into Rundeck and run the integration test that way. 
because the, the since we have to run these in, we can run them headless, but they're still pretty flaky. And this allows us to kind of pass around the results of the tests to other people. Whereas if they were on my local machine, I wouldn't really have a way to like save the state of when those tests failed. Got it. That means you have this custom tooling from your job that allows you to basically take what you've just done and push it and run it on Rundeck and then collect the results somehow. Yep. Nice. Yeah, I guess they did a good job in hiding, hiding. <laughs> I know they have hit a lot, but it's also very frustrating when we have things like, um, so our login application is separate from our front end application. And so if there was like a deployment that went out in our login application and all of a sudden I'm getting 500s, you know, that's kind of a black box in op stuff. So or black box in uh, Docker because of the way Ops has set it all up. So it's kind of, I hate having to go to them when stuff like that happens. Oh, I feel you. <laughs> I mean, I can like tail the logs and stuff like that. So that's a little bit helpful, but. Okay. Yeah, interesting. I would really love to see how, how they set it up. Sounds super interesting. <laughs> so one other thing that I've been hearing a lot about lately is Kubernetes. So in order to use Docker, obviously you don't have to use Kubernetes. But at what point are you going to start to see that it pays off to use it? If you're running containers in production and you want to do that at scale, then Kubernetes is probably a good choice. Just various alternatives. Uh, so what Kubernetes does is container orchestration. It means it takes care of spinning up containers on a cluster of many machines for you so that you as a developer or operator don't have to care about, oh, which container runs on which host and how do I get the traffic to that container? Kubernetes abstracts it away from you and you're just having this uh, interface where you say, oh, I want to run 10 containers of this type and 15 of this type and 25 of this type and traffic should flow this way. And Kubernetes figures out how to create and maintain this state for you, basically. Oh, wow. Super powerful, super cool. Not the easiest tool. And probably not would I, what I would suggest going with on day one. But if you're taking containers serious and you're like running big production workloads, then that's probably the, the way to go for sure. So if I have a simple app that I'm hosting on you know, one or two machines or even you know, I have a front end, a back end, and a database and maybe job servers, I may or may not need Kubernetes. But once it starts to get, you know, I have a whole bunch of things that it depends on, then, it, then I start needing to think about that. Yeah, that's how I would put it. So do you want to walk us through the process of getting started with Docker? I mean, you have this course, so where, where do you get people started at? Step number one, installing Docker. Okay, uh, that was sort of obvious. <laughs> I thought I mentioned it anyway. Yeah, fair enough. And then you're basically ready to go. What it does, it's a Docker is a client-server application. You get uh, a Docker client that will always run on your actual operating system, for example, like macOS or Windows or whatever you're using. And then there's the server part of Docker, the Docker daemon, that depending on your operating system will either run natively or inside a virtual machine. Uh -huh. And then you can use the Docker client to issue commands uh, to make the Docker daemon do its job. For example, build a container image based on a Docker file or run a container based on a container image or push, pull container images from a so-called image registry, which is how you can share container images with others. That's the, the basic operations with the Docker client. And then the other part you're using is a, a Docker file, which contains the step-by-step -step instructions on how to build the container image. So you're starting with, oh, I want to use 
an existing image as my base image, then I want to run these uh, commands in order to install my dependencies, for example, using the Ubuntu package managers uh, or Debian package manager, if using one of those operating systems inside the container, mm-hmm. run an NPM install to install my dependencies, uh, copying the source code, telling Docker which executable we want to use inside the container when we start a container. And that's pretty much it. That's uh, how it works in a nutshell. And then you can set something like Docker Composer on top of that, where you describe many different containers and their images, how they are built and how they can communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to have an easy time and a good time if you're following the 12-factor methodology for your application. So it's like one or more stateless processes. You configure your application using environment variables. Uh, you scale out via the process model. You want to attach services as resources, for example, or you want to have a database. It means you spin up a database as another container. And as I said, from a high level, that's basically it. There's just a lot of nuances and the way of thinking that might get in the way. One thing is a lot of people try to use containers as virtual machines and spin up multiple services inside the container. So you would mm-hmm. run the database and the web front end in the same container because that's how you would do it on your local machine or when you're using a virtual machine. But what you have to do is, or what you should do in order to be successful is uh, run them as separate containers and have them communicate over the network. I'm curious about that, actually. So it makes sense probably that your UI and your database don't live in the same container, but what about like your API and your database? you still think those should be separate? Uh, yes. And... The reason why they should be separate is containers are just processes. And if you think about what you would do to a process, would you, for example, say, oh, my node application is responsible for managing the processes of my database management system? <laughs> no. Probably not. So you also don't want to have your Docker container be responsible for you know, managing node application and the database management system. It's that makes two different sense. things. Yep. So I, we haven't heard a lot from AJ or Chris. I'm curious what you're wondering about or what your experience has been with Docker. Yeah, that's a great question. So I've used Docker a little bit at work. It's always felt a little bit like a black box to me. I actually should probably take Julian's course. The extent of my experience hey, with Docker... I need to take it too. Right? Like the extent of my experience with Docker so far has been following some... Some documentation at work, um, running a couple command line things, and then just having, sometimes if I'm lucky, having a machine up and running that does what I want, what I need, or a container, I should say. Depending on how good the documentation is or how much it assumes that I really know command line, I've not always been so lucky. A lot of times I get stuff that's like, just run these eight things that you have no idea about, and then you're good to go. But I like the idea of it. And there's also been some instances where Docker has definitely, it's like it's replaced some more manual stuff where we've had to go and like just line by line install a bunch of garbage. And then you run into all sorts of like system conflicts and things. So like, I really like the idea of Docker. I definitely need to learn more. So I guess, you know, with all that in mind, Julian, one of the things that I would love kind of from your perspective, in addition to obviously just taking your course 
if I wanted to like get started with this and I'm someone who has zero familiarity, I've not worked with containers before in a real meaningful way, where would you recommend I start? I've tried looking at the documentation. Docker has added a lot of stuff since the last time I looked at it. It used to just be like kind of a single product offering. And now they've done that thing. I, I hate that companies do where they have both products and solutions as two different tabs and they have a lot of redundant stuff. So I never know where to look. So I just like, I tried digging in their site a little bit and I was like, ah, I don't know where to get started. So like, if I'm someone who wants to get started and I haven't taken your course yet, um, like what, what would you recommend I do if I have like zero kind of background here? And I'm thinking about people in particular who are maybe not like they can fumble their way through terminal, but they're certainly not like, like bash pros or anything like that. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Good question. You have to be a little bit comfortable with the command line. You don't have to be an expert to use Docker. In terms of resources to consume, I basically made that course because I couldn't find good resources when I was totally learning Docker. Totally know how that goes. Yeah, awesome. The documentation got a lot better in the, the past year, but it's still, it's, it's a lot to learn and it's not, you know, there's no path that you can follow. It's just mm -hmm. information that you need to like try to get into your head. There's a couple other courses. I haven't taken them, so I can't say they're awesome or bad or something in between. Sure, sure. I think uh, learndocker.online, it's a great resource. Uh, it's free or payment is optional, so feel free to check it out. And then it's like learning anything else. You just, you need to do it. You need to sit down, you need to play with it. Uh, you need to actually use it for one of your applications so that you understand where you feel pain and where things get easier. Does your course kind of like walk you through setting up, I'll call it like a dummy project or like kind of like a, like a practice project or does it not get that into the weeds? We start very simple by basically running a web server and okay. then we run our own applications and we like introduce slow balancing and awesome. iterate on applications and test driven development and then even put it in production. So it's like we, we start small and then just start building on top of what we learned. Awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to check that out because this is a... Uh, you, you definitely should. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we're, um, we're starting to use it more work too. So this will, uh, this will definitely be something I can, I can actually use. I shouldn't say just we, like everybody's moving in the containerized direction. So it's, um, it's yeah. definitely a good thing to know. And it's, it's definitely some time investment and it's a learning curve, but ultimately it saved me so much time already that it's been absolutely worth it. And even if you're not using them in production, just using them in your development workflow and being able to like iterate fast on a project with others is, is so nice when you don't have to, like, you know, 
figure out why this library doesn't work anymore after updating this other library or changing the node versions or having to deal with a different language, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, oh, that's not running because you're a version behind on Ruby. Like I've, I've been there before too. Yeah. So. And now you have to learn about the Ruby version manager and installing uh -huh. gems and uh, having local libraries so that you compile native extensions and it's just stuff that I don't want to worry about or care about anymore. I just want to, you know, write code and run my applications and not mm -hmm. deal with dependencies. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's nice is that upgrading or updating your server. I mean, before it was, yeah, you would go into the server and then you would update Ruby and then you would go reinstall all the gems and hope that all of the underlying libraries were up to date. And with Docker now, you can actually just kill it and put a new one in and you can do that on your development machine until you have a running copy and that's what works in production now totally and it's not only you know development production you can also use it on ci cd you can mm -hmm. put it in staging you can promote it from staging to production it's like it's the same thing in uh, the whole life cycle of your application and you know it will behave the same way more or less no matter where you run it yeah so i also have a little bit of experience with docker and being the contrarian that I am, I, I understand its value. Um, I, I think that it reduces the amount of shared understanding that's needed to get a collection of projects working if your shared understanding is then limited to Docker. Like if you say we're going to focus our shared understanding is Docker, then your shared understanding doesn't have to be Debian, and it doesn't have to be Bash, and it doesn't have to be Ruby, and it doesn't have to be Node, etc. So I, I agree with that. Where I'm kind of frustrated that, I guess, not in Docker itself, but that there's a need for Docker and, and the black boxiness that Chris was talking about. The reason we have Docker is because we couldn't just agree and say, yeah, let's use Debian Linux. Because everybody wants to use their own version of Linux. And then we have like these library problems that we were talking about, right? And because... Unfortunately, the shared libraries war was won by shared libraries instead of static libraries. So instead of just having an application that's self-contained, like an Electron app, a lot of these things, uh, Postgres, uh, web applications that you build, et cetera, are not very self-contained. And they have dependencies that require things like Node version manager or Ruby version manager, where you, instead of the application installing into its own bundle the things that it needs, it requires the system settings to change. And Docker alleviates that problem. But I think that problem is, well, one that's probably not going to be solved, but it's, it's the problem of how we're developing applications that we, we're creating the problem that Docker solves. And I think it would be awesome if somebody could just write a, a bunch of tutorials and documentation that people could agree on to say, yeah, let's just use Debian and let's just install all of our applications into slash opt with their dependencies. And then let's have small little tiny things that run self-contained that don't need containers because they are contained into themselves. But that's probably more of a pipe dream and Docker is probably the more practical solution. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to create my own Linux distro and call it the one true. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. Well, no, what we need, we just need somebody to come up with their own super opinionated way of doing things. And then just like 
like standard JS was one guy's opinion about how to write JS. And then he just called it standard. We just need somebody to create a standard Linux and then we won't need Docker. <laughs> hey, I actually use that config whenever I'm spinning up new projects. So that is my favorite. <laughs> which, which one? Uh, JS standard for my ESLint config. Uh-huh. Well, what's, what's funny about it is that it's not standard JavaScript. It's, you know, one person's opinion, but he was yes. able to call it JS standard and then get a bunch I of people to follow. Of the ones out there, though, it's my favorite. <laughs> that, that's like the ultimate name squatting, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, I have a couple more questions. One is, as you talked about, essentially having a staging setup that you promote to production. How do you set up multiple stages of Docker? I mean, do you just have three different Docker files or is there a better mechanism for that? Ultimately, the recommended way, at least from my perspective, is to have the same Docker file that's used in development, staging, production, CI, CD, wherever you run it, so that you can be sure that's okay, it's the same uh-huh. same image. And then what changes from production to staging is either how you get traffic to the container, do you run route production traffic to it or staging traffic? Oh, I guess that makes sense. And maybe the configuration, the runtime configuration. So which database do you connect to or which domain do you listen on, which are configure runtime configuration settings, which are changed via environment variables. So that's basically the how you distinguish between the two. That's that's an important thing to mention is that when you're using Docker, and a lot of things are like this anyway, like Heroku was this way before Docker was around, but when you're using Docker, command line arguments are no longer a thing. Like you have to make sure that you write into your application to read from environment variables because there is no way to pass a command line argument. You must, you must do all of your configuration via, via environment variables. And that's how you're able to take one Docker file and promote it from dev to stage to production and just have it switch, like he was saying, the connections and whatnot. So do you just have some production config that has your database credentials and stuff in it? If you're using Heroku, variables or what? If you're using Heroku, for example, or Circle CI, there's a page under your applications where it lists out all of the environment variables. And so you go in and you say, you know, all caps Postgres underscore URL, and then you set the variable for the Postgres URL, or you know whatever it might be. And that's going to be different in your Dev app, in your Dev account versus your staging and your production apps and your production account. So does it pass through the environment variables then? You decide which environment variables you want to pass through to a container. Okay. You, you specify it basically on the command line or in a file that you say, hey, use this file for environment variables. Gotcha. So you're going to have some file in production then that has all of your environment variables that need to be set. Yeah, it's some file or database or right. depending on what you're using in production to run the containers. Right. So how do you go about securing those typically? Do you just encrypt them somehow or? So different mechanisms, if you have sensitive information, there's other tools that you can use. For example, with Docker and Docker Swarm, you get something that's called Docker Secrets. Okay. Which allows you to store arbitrary values in an encrypted way, in a way that's like encrypted on disk always and decrypted uh, when it's made available to your application and then your application can just read it from a file in a memory file system. So you have a, basically what it gives you is a very easy way to create credentials, uh, encrypt them, to store them and decrypt them and make them available to any type of application you need them to be available for. Gotcha. Which is 
also kind of cool. One of the cool things about that whole container thing, it's not just, it makes it easy to deal with dependencies. It also takes a lot of responsibilities that were in your application um, before that, or where you had to like have separate systems and make sure that everything is configured correctly. It takes that completely out and just puts that responsibility into the container runtime and container orchestration software. Same for logging or monitoring and you solve those issues on an infrastructure level for all of your applications at the same time. One other thing that I'm wondering about is I've seen systems that, you know, and, and I think Amy mentioned this earlier that have hybridized things like basically using Ansible or Chef is the one that I've seen, Chef Solo. So you, you do your basic setup with the Docker file and then you use Chef Solo to go in and manage it from there. I, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. Have you seen many people doing it that way? So you're saying they're using Chef inside of a container? Yes. Interesting. Setup. I'm not sure if I would do that. I um, think Discourse used to do it. Hmm. And I guess I mean, if you have a really complicated setup, it might be it might make more sense than having a really, really long Docker file. Absolutely. I think, so for me, the reason to use Chef or Ansible would be, oh, it works across many different platforms. So I'm not necessarily tied to this one very specific Mac that I have for the setup, right. but I can use it wherever I want. But when I use Docker and I have this Docker file right. that's You're based on that. Ubuntu, then I'm limited to that anyway. Yeah. But I guess there's, yeah, I mean, if it makes your setup easier, go do it. We're still figuring out containers. We're still, you know, it's still relative new technology and whatever works for you is, is the right choice. One other thing that I, I just want to call out is uh, Docker Hub. And essentially you can create containers or create, yeah, create containers and then have them up in a repository kind of like we do with our code. How robust is that? Can you put private images up there and can you... You know, I know you can base one image off of another, but, uh, you know, to, to what degree can you, you know, kind of go nuts with having all kinds of different versions of your stuff up there? You can go totally nuts with that. You can have private images, you can have public images, you can even run your own version of Docker Hub or I could, not necessarily Docker Hub, but under the hood is what's a so-called container registry that stores your images and the different versions of your images in a repository. Right. You can easily run that on your own platform or your own hardware. You can use Docker Hub. You can use an alternative. They more or less do all the same things, which is storing and managing images and making them available to others so that they can pull them from if they are allowed to do that. And yeah, you can chain images together endlessly. So I guess the other question is then if I go out there and I want to deploy something somewhere using Docker, should I use container registry or should I use like a CI system to build the Docker container and then deploy it out somewhere else? So I guess the special thing about Docker Hub is that they also have something like a CI system integrated with a Docker cloud, uh -huh. uh, which makes it basically makes the connection between the two very easy. No matter whether you're using Docker Hub or your own uh, image registry, building images on CI is a good idea since you're having this, you know, defined setup and defined environment to build your Docker images. When, whether you want to use Docker Hub or something else, it's probably more depending on, do you have restrictions from your company? Can you right. host your images on a public image repository or does it need to be your own? Um, can you use public images to base your own images on or do you need to start from scratch with like a completely empty image and then 
you know, build and assemble your own Linux distribution that runs inside of this container image. Gotcha. If people want to check out your course, what should they do? They should go to learndocker.online, uh, log in with GitHub and enjoy the videos. I recently got some feedback from users that the course is too expensive. So we're restructuring pricing a little bit. I also decided payments are optional. So if you feel like paying and uh, enable, help me to enable to produce more content, I'm really thankful, but it's more important to me that people learn Docker and enjoy the course. So the content is available free, check it out, decide whether you want to pay or not at any point in time, but make sure to check it out and learn Docker. It will definitely make your life better. Awesome. Anyone else have other things they want to bring up? All right, let's go ahead and do picks then. Before we do that though, Julian, are there other places that people should go if they want to find you online? You can find me on Twitter. I'm J-U-F-A-H-R. I'm also in the process of writing an ebook about how to use Docker in combination with Rails specifically and to get a really nice development workflow going. Um, a lot of the content will also apply to other frameworks like Django or Express or whatever you're using, railswithdocker.com. And besides that, I'm blogging on codetails.io. That's uh, like DuckTales, but for code. And that's it. Nice. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. Or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. AJ, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, I will. Um, well, first thing I will pick is Zermatt Resort in Utah. I just went there for my anniversary and my wife loved it. Had a really good time. It's a nice rustic, well, it's, it's a Swiss themed, it's almost like a, a Swiss themed theme park, except it's a resort with a spa and a couple of restaurants and uh, some events. If you, if you are making the trip to Utah, a lot of people know about Park City. I found the food there at three different restaurants to be rather well presented, but bland. And the food in Heber and Midway, where Zermatt is, is pretty good. And there's a, a dairy. So if you, if you come to Utah, you're going to fly into Salt Lake and about a 40 minute drive from you or so is going to be the Park City Midway Heber area. And I'd recommend checking that area out, checking out the shops and the small town feel that it's got. Um, cause it's cool. Nice. Yeah. My family and I, we're going up to Park City this week. So awesome. Should be fun. Uh, Amy, what are your picks? Uh, so this weekend I worked on a little side project and I decided I wanted to also deploy it. It's been a while since I kind of did my own little deployment and I was Googling around and I found something called surge.sh and it was absolutely amazing. You just npm install dash g surge so it's installed globally. You type surge and ask you a couple questions if you don't already have an account. You can edit the, it's going to be like a surge.sh URL, but you can kind of like, I remember in the old days when I used to 
use Heroku, you can edit it. Um, so you can change the URL to what you want it to be. But all that to say, it deployed in like 60 seconds, super easy, super awesome. And I'm trying to think if I have any good food picks. I haven't had any really good food picks in a while, but life has been way too busy. And I go to the grocery store, I get the same exact thing every week. And I don't think much about it anymore because I'm so busy, which kind of sucks. But <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll just stick with Surge for this week. Nice. Chris, what are your picks? Hey, hey. so a couple for me this week. The first, if you use your computer at night, like I do sometimes, or in a darkened room as developers are want to do, I don't know about you guys, but I find that even when I have my computer on the lowest brightness setting, it is still just like way too intense for me at certain hours of the night. If you are on Mac, um, there's this really awesome app called Brightness from Berg Design. Um, I think it's like two or three bucks, but um, it was money well spent. It basically adds this like perma overlay on top of your screen that is semi-transparent and allows you to wickedly tone down the brightness on your screen so that you can work without going blind. I know like I do dark mode on my text editor, but then when I jump over to my browser, that's not always, you know, there's not always a dark mode on the website and it's just like way, way too bright. So brightness has been a night saver for me. It's also cool if you do like non-coding stuff on your computer at night, like if you're like, gaming or anything like that. Um, so super recommend. I've been rocking it for about a month now and, uh, I have it installed on every computer I own. I am never looking back. The second one on the JavaScript framework accessibility front, there was this really interesting article that came out last week from, and I'm going to butcher her last name, but it's uh, Rian Reitveld. She was one of the accessibility folks on the uh, WordPress engineering team. And she recently stepped down over their whole Gutenberg process, but she wrote this really detailed article about how their decision to go all in on React with the kind of their latest iteration of the product has created some barriers to entry for the team charged with making sure that WordPress and in particular the dashboard are accessible for all users and how it's made it difficult for them to test components to be involved as engineers in the process because it's not an area of expertise for anybody on the team. And they've really struggled to kind of be involved in the project in a meaningful way. Um, and that's not to say that you should never use frameworks because of stuff like this, but I just, I thought it was really interesting how tools that people often talk about as making it easier to work effectively on teams can in some cases create barriers to effective um, teamwork. So it's just a really, for me, just kind of a really interesting read. Also highlighted the importance of um, accessibility stuff. And then just one last thing, because I think this episode is going to come out um, pretty close to the like Thanksgiving, Black Friday, Cyber Monday time. So if you're interested in learning more about vanilla JavaScript stuff, um, I run an awesome 50% off all of my things sale right around this time of year. So head over to gomakethings.com and you can learn more about that. All right. Uh, Joe, do you have some picks for us? Oh, I do, I do, I do. So speaking of Docker, I was running some interesting, uh, I was looking at some analytics for ng-conf and the videos we've got now four years of videos about ng-conf. We were just looking to see what videos have been most popular over time. And uh, one of the things that I discovered that was very interesting is like, say for just like the last 30-day period, of the top 10 videos, two of them were Docker videos. <laughs> which I thought was really quite interesting. So for an Angular channel, 
uh, two of the top 10 videos had nothing to do with Angular. Obviously, Docker is a very wide, very interesting topic. So I am going to pick those two videos. There are two uh, videos about Docker done by Dan Wallin. And if you just head over to YouTube and search ng-conf Docker, there will be the videos that will come up. So I will pick those. As well as my other pick is going to be rock climbing. I did a bunch of rock climbing when I was a teenager, and there's an indoor rock climbing gym in town that's just about 10, 15 minutes away from where I live. Decided to go and sign up and start climbing again. I've just been having a huge, huge, huge blast and um, really enjoyed the time that I've been spending. So that is going to be my second pick is rock climbing or doing whatever it is you did long ago that you haven't done forever because you've been trying to be a responsible adult instead and you're not doing the thing that you really enjoyed doing, go do that again. Unless that was, you know, like egging cars, in which case, don't go back to that. (laughs) (laughs) Or figure skating for me. (laughs) Well, you said egging cars. My brothers aren't listening, Joe. (laughs) I I all of a sudden (laughs) see, just, uh, just saw Amy... Uh, figure skating and throwing eggs at people. <laughs> I don't know why that popped into my head, but no, I don't somehow like those two things got combined. I just like to go to like the open skate and skate really fast next to people and then stop really fast and scare them a little. Only the people <laughs> that deserve it, not the sweet <laughs> do, you, do you Are you one of those people that goes to the open skate and then skates and like completely shows everybody up and they're all just like staring at you the whole time? Maybe. And you're like pretending not to totally gloat in the adoration <laughs> of everybody. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I only do the stopping thing to the bullies, though. Only to the bullies. Oh, yeah. She only bullies the bullies. <laughs> only bullies the bullies. Good. Good for you, Amy. Those are my picks. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. The first one is uh, Extreme Ownership. And this is the third time I've picked this today. It's a book. I still am getting the author's names wrong. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's by uh, Jocko Willink and uh, Leif Babin. I'm sure I'm saying these names wrong. Anyway, it's Extreme Ownership, How Navy Seals, U.S. Navy Seals Lead and Win. And essentially, uh, both of these guys were uh, leaders of SEAL teams in uh, Iraq. And um, they came back and people were asking them to uh, speak at their companies about leadership and it turned into this thing, right? They'd speak at one company and that company would have invited a CEO or two from another company. And those CEOs afterward would come up to them and say, you got to come speak at my company. And so they wrote this book that has a lot of the stuff that they go over in there. And I'm, I'm really, really digging it. So I'm going to pick that. I'm also going to, so Joe talking about things that, uh, you wish you could do, but you can't because people changed the night that you were going and doing it. I mean, um, that you did when you were young and you don't have time for anymore because you're a, a, a responsible adult. I've started playing D&D with my brothers and sisters on Sunday nights. I was in another group, but they changed the night on me and I, I can't make it. <laughs> but a bunch of jerks. I know, Change right? The night on you. The, the dungeon master is an idiot. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I've heard that guy is an idiot. But you got, it got you to play D&D with your siblings? Yeah, so my brother's been uh, DMing. Uh, he's the dungeon master, and um, yeah, uh, there are I think six of us in the party, and it, it's it's just been a blast. So been doing that, and of course I ordered more D and D crap online. 
so that we could play with nicer toys. That's awesome. But anyway, so I've really been enjoying that. There's a ton of great stuff. Uh, to get started, I mean, the things that I ordered that I think really make the difference, I ordered a, um, a grid uh, map marker, dry erase marker. I, I don't know what to call it, but it's a mat that you draw the maps on. And then I picked up the Dungeon Master's Guide and I picked up some figurines because he had printed it out on paper. And anyway, um, one resource that he has us playing on, and I'm still trying to decide how much I like it because it's still kind of, I don't know what the right word is, uh, not polished. Is It's called OrcPub, OrcPub.net or OrcPub2.net. And essentially you manage your character sheets on there. And be using D&D Beyond. It's way better. I'll, I'll have to check it out. But uh, anyway, so yeah, that, that's kind of the way we've been playing it. Of course, then everybody's sitting there with their laptop in front of them, managing their characters, which uh, I don't love. But anyway, it's, it's been pretty awesome just getting together and playing D&D with folks. So I'm going to pick that. Julian, you have some picks for us? I do, yeah. My first pick is going to be Pickle.js, which is a testing framework created by my good friend and coworker Tali. And it basically sits on top of Cucumber, makes it really easy for our product managers to write specs that we can then use in our integration tests. And it uses right now Cypress under the hood as a test runner, but it's flexible and he's working on more testing frameworks. And he has these awesome baked-in selectors that make it really, really easy to write expressive uh, tests in an easy way. And we are testing some pretty crazy stuff from like WebGL applications that we're using at MatchUp with a 3D reconstruction. And we're using Pickle.js to test, to make cross-application integration specs where we interact with the site and make sure everything works as expected. Um, really awesome, makes it really easy to test stuff. And my second pick is going to be a book called Positive Intelligence. I think the author is called Shesat Jamin. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. The full title of the book is Positive Intelligence, Why Only 20% of Teams and Individuals Achieve Their True Potential and How You Can Achieve Yours. It's a great book that teaches a lot about how we think and act as humans and what holds us back and what we can do to overcome that burden and I guess, reach our full potential. And that's it for me. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming, Julian. Uh, thanks for having me anytime. All right. We'll, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we will catch everybody next week. Woohoo. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.